Okay, today we're going to look at John Owen, and really today is um, uh, more of a kind of an overview of his life, and then next week uh, we'll look at some of his teaching, uh, particularly on the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll allude to that tonight, but uh, it'll be really next week that we'll look at uh, some details of his teaching. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get underway. Our Father, we give you praise and thanks that we can come together like this. We thank you for freedom that so often we take for granted. We thank you for the privilege of gathering like this to think about uh, men and women of the past who were faithful in their day. And we pray that as we think about this servant, John Owen, that you would use our reflections uh, to help us uh, think and to act. Uh, in accordance with the gospel. We pray your blessing upon our time, and we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, John Owen, this is uh, a fairly standard portrait that you would see of Owen back in the 17th century. It's a 17th century portrait. Um, that's a wig, and uh, we've, I think I've alluded to this earlier, uh, wearing wigs was common in that period. And uh, his hair, he would have shaved his head. And I suspect it might have been for things like lice. Um, most people in the 17th century had a bath maybe once or twice a year. Um, Richard, Richard Baxter, who we looked at last two weeks ago, if you remember Richard Baxter, uh, and his marriage relationship with Margaret Charlton, um, he had real problems with Baptists, and he said on one occasion uh, that Baptists are dangerous individuals because they endanger people's souls by baptizing them. Because as everybody knows, when you, when you plunge a body underwater, it opens the pores of the skin and opens you up to disease. And uh, I'm not sure if he was joking, but he said at one point, he said, the Baptists, therefore, have hit upon a great scheme to murder the na their neighbors whom they don't like. And if, you do if there's somebody you don't like, just take him along to the Baptist. They'll baptize him, and that might do him in. And it was very obvious. There was a doctor in the 1680s who wrote a treatise on why regular bathing was good for your health, and he was regarded as something of a quack. So I suspect that the wigs were used in part for issues of lice and that, etc. But anyway, uh, John Owen is a remarkable figure in many, many ways. And today we're going to look at his life. Uh, this is a quote from J.I. Packer. Uh, Packer's book, A Quest for Godliness, is really a, a series of essays. It's about 20 essays on different Puritans, uh, different aspects of Puritan life. It's a very, very helpful book in trying to get to the kind of meat of Puritanism. And uh, he says at one point, the Puritan John Owen was one of the greatest of English theologians. In an age of giants, he overtopped them all. C.H. Spurgeon called him the Prince of Divines. Um, he's hardly known today. And he was writing this, uh, as you can see, about uh, 30 years ago. Uh, that's not exactly true. Owen is fairly well known today. And we are the poorer for our ignorance. Um, I want to begin with a story, and the story relates to these three men, 
this is Owen over here. That's uh, a portrait done in his day. This is Charles II, uh, the King of England, whom Owen knew. Uh, and this man is John Bunyan. This is a portrait that was done in his life. It hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, there's really only two portraits that we have of Bunyan. Um, the social distance between him, the King of England, and him, John Bunyan, is vast. Uh, John Bunyan, uh, born 1628, uh, he would become a very close friend of John Owen. Um, he was what was known in that day as a tinker. Now, when I hear that word, I think of a gypsy or something like that, but a tinker in that period meant a person who would go around and mend pots and pans. Some of you may recall in the summers, uh, people uh, driving trucks around your neighborhood, uh, ringing a bell, and if you get out in time, they'll sharpen your knives. Well, that's a descendant of what Bunyan did for a living. His father was a tinker, and that would mean uh, going around neighboring villages, sharpening knives, mending metal tools, as well as uh, uh, implement various metal implements. And so he's very poor. In fact, Bunyan would say he, he came from the poorest of the poor, which is not, probably not exactly true, but there is a vast social difference between these two men. But the king had heard of Bunyan's preaching. Bunyan would come into London sometimes and preach, and on a typical Sunday morning, upwards of 2,000 people would turn out to hear him preach. Vast crowd of people in that period of time. Now, the king never knew, knew Bunyan personally. Uh, he didn't think much of Bunyan at all. But he did know John Owen, and he found out that John Owen went to hear Bunyan preach. And the story is that uh, on one occasion, uh, Charles said to uh, Owen, what on earth are you, you doing going to listen to, you know, some lower class tinker preach? And Bunyan said, uh, Owen said this, could I possess the tinker's abilities for preaching, please your majesty, I would gladly relinquish all my learning. In other words, if I could possess the way Bunyan was able to speak to crowds and the way God had blessed his public ministry, I'd be glad to give up all my learning. Uh, Owen had a Master of Arts, which wasn't the epitome of learning in that day, but it was very high. He would eventually become the Vice Chancellor of Oxford University. Um, in fact, by the, by the time that this little story took place, he had already been the Vice Chancellor. So he had moved among educated elites um, in his congregation, he pastored a church in London where some uh, noblemen, that's how he ended up knowing the king. And um, it's, a very interesting, it's a very interesting little story. Um, as far as I know, it's a true story. Um, it points out a number of things. Number one, it points out Owen's deep, deep commitment, like all Puritans, to preaching. If I had to, if I, Bunyan's, Bowen's basically saying, if I, if I had a choice of trading all my learning for pre, being able to preach well, I'd give up all my learning just to be able to preach well. So it, it bespeaks his, his, uh, Owen's deep interest in preaching. Secondly, uh, there's a humility here. Um, his own recognition that he was not a preacher, 
like Bunyan, although we'll see that he could command large audiences too. Um, Charles Spurgeon, many years later, in the 1880s, uh, Spurgeon quotes this story and said, Owen was dead wrong in saying such a thing to the king because, after all, God had blessed Owen with great learning and the church needs both preaching and learning, which I think uh, uh, Spurgeon is right. But it's an interesting story. It kind of gets us into Owen, Owen's interest in preaching, his humility, and his friendship with Bunyan. Um, Bunyan had grade four education, grade five. He could read and write when he left school. And then when he was 10 years old, 11 years old, his father put him out to being a tinker. Uh, Owen uh, went up to Oxford University when he was 12. Uh, a BA in those days is more like a high school education. And by the end of the 1630s, he had an MA. He was a very learned individual. So there's a vast difference between them in terms of uh, social class, their intellectual, uh, their intellectual attainments, not their intellectual abilities, but their attainments. And yet they become very close friends. And uh, uh, one of Bunyan's books, not as famous as Pilgrim's Progress, but, but a book called The Holy War. Uh, it's, a, it's a story, it's an allegory of Satan's attack upon the human soul. And he depicts the, the human soul as a fortress being defended by God and angels. And there are four captains who are defending the fortress of the human soul. And one of them is modeled after John Owen. In fact, when Bunyan um, is imprisoned the second time, Bunyan's imprisoned twice, 1660 to 1672, and then briefly again in 1675, it'll be John Owen who gets him out of prison. He'll go to the king and ask for Bunyan to be released after six months. And so there's a deep friendship between these, these two men. And the story is quite likely. So let me go. I'm going to basically go through Owen's life. I'm going to punctuate it with a number of uh, kind of anecdotes or stories that I think capture the essence of Owen. Um, Owen was born near Oxford. Here's Oxford. Um, uh, trying to get maps off of Google or uh, off the Internet and get them copied is a bit of a palaver, if you know what that word means. Or a, it's a it's a bit of a real bother trying to do it because all kinds of maps I and mean, they must have put things in them so you can't take screenshots you can't copy them some ways and so um, I really wanted a map that showed you Oxford in relation to to London London's down here uh, today it's 50 minutes by bus but Bunyan uh, 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 Owen is born here little village called Stadhampton that's what it's called now if you're ever in Oxford and you want to find out where Owen uh, lived, you can go to little, this little village called Stadhampton. In those days, it was called Stedham, and not far from Oxford. His father, Henry Owen, was a minister of the gospel. Uh, Bunyan is, uh, Owen is born 1616. That's the year that William Shakespeare dies. So it gives you some idea of the kind of world, uh, what's going on in that world at the time. And um, Owen, Owen writes... A huge amount of stuff. We have 16 volumes, thick volumes like this. Uh, most of them are about five, 600 pages with very small font, which if they were normal font today, probably would run to about 20, 22 volumes. Uh, then he's got 
that those are his main works, and then he's got a volume of Latin works, and then he's got he's got the largest commentary ever written on Hebrews. It runs to about three thousand pages, uh, seven volumes on the book of Hebrews, and in all of that, he says virtually nothing about his family. He has one line in all of that about his father, in which he says that his father was a nonconformist. All his days, his father's a minister, so that means his father was a Puritan. His father didn't go along with all of the details of the worship of the Church of England, um, which would get him into problems. Um, and he describes him as a painful laborer, which, if you don't know what he's using, the word painful there, like, what's he mean? He means he was a diligent worker in the vineyard of the Lord. Um, his father then was the minister of this little church here in Stadhampton. It was St. John the Baptist Parish Church. It still exists. You can go to it. That's where his father was for most of his life. This is where Owen was raised with his brothers and sisters. Owen's got three brothers who will survive infancy. Uh, one of them will be killed fighting with Oliver Cromwell in Ireland. Uh, the other two will end up in ministry as well. Um, Owen doesn't tell us anything about his early years. But if his father was a Puritan, um, he would have heard, the, obviously, the preaching of the gospel. He would have heard emphases on the necessity of being born again. He would have, been, he would have had morning, definitely morning prayer with his, with his father and his family. Uh, maybe even evening prayer, where his father would gather the family, they'd pray together, he'd read scripture. Um, he would have heard his father pray for the nation. Uh, many of the Puritan leaders of the 1630, 1620s were very concerned about where England was going. Uh, they were concerned about the king, James I. They'd be even more concerned about his, his son, Charles I, because Charles I, if you remember, marries a Roman Catholic, and he is promoting men who are not Puritans. So he would have heard his father pray for the nation. His father would have prayed for the parish. Prayed for the Church of England, prayed for the nation. And um, when he was 12 years old, um, he goes up to Oxford in 1628. It was, that's only seven miles. Uh, so it's very close to home. And um, uh, this is, by the way, this is all flat, pretty flat as a pancake. So you're going up to Oxford, sounds like you're going up the hill. I think I've talked about this before. It's... You go up to Oxford, and when you graduate, you come down from Oxford. <laughs> Likewise, Cambridge. Cambridge is even flatter. And it's just a nomenclature that, you know, you're going up to the halls of academia to learn, and then you come down. Uh, so he's 12 when he goes. He gets his BA four years later in 1632. And then in 1635, he receives his MA. If you remember, this is roughly the same time period as Brilliana Harley. Um, Brilliana Harley would be about... Uh, about an hour's drive now from Oxford to the west, and she's raising her children in this environment, and her son would go up to Oxford around this very same period. But by the time her son goes to Oxford, uh, Owen's left. Owen hoped to go on and teach at Oxford, but the Archbishop of Canterbury is determined to get rid of all the Puritans out of Oxford and out of Cambridge, and he is purging the universities, not necessarily the students. So 
Brilliana Harley's son is a Puritan. He goes up to Oxford to study. Uh, but all of the Puritan leaders in who are professors are being forced. You either have to conform to exactly everything that the Church of England wants. You cannot teach Calvinism, the, the, uh, the perspective on salvation, etc. And Owen realizes there's no place for him to teach in Oxford. And he enters the employ of a man named Lord Lovelace, who is a sympathizer of Puritans, and he becomes his private chaplain. Which would mean he would be a tutor to his children during the week. He'd be teaching children uh, various lessons, everything from uh, science, mathematics, to medicine, to theology, to the Bible, the whole range of stuff. And then on the, on the Sunday, he would lead a worship service in the, the man's home, which would be for the family, for the servants, and for surrounding villages that that Lord would own. Um, this, there's a whole class of people in England called the gentry. We don't have them here. Um, you have the royal family. You have the aristocracy, who generally are related to the royal family. And then you've got a large group of people, uh, upwards of twelve to 15,000 people in this period, um, who are called gentry. They are distantly related to monarch, the royalty. Uh, they generally are wealthy landowners, and they often own villages where they control who gets appointed minister. They raise their money is raised from the taxes of the people, etc., um, etc. Et and none of them work for a living, technically. So, if you've ever watched any of Jane Austen movies, uh, this is the world of Jane Austen. It's gentry. Uh, so you've got people visiting each other. They go to visit each other. It's like six months at a stretch. And they're like, don't any of these people work for a living? No, they don't. And it's a whole class of people which is very much part of the English class system. And uh, they're wealthy enough to employ their own tutors and chaplains. And so for a period of time, uh, that's where uh, Owen is. And then suddenly in 1642, well, not suddenly, but in 1642, Civil war breaks out, and Owen realizes that the man that is in his household, Lord Lovelace, he is a Puritan sympathizer, but he's probably going to take the king's side in the war. And he realizes, I can't stay in this man's household, and he leaves, and he goes to London. And um, very important experience happens to him in London. Um... London is the largest city in England at the time. It's around half a million people. The next largest city is Norwich. Uh, we've got a little town over near Woodstock called Norwich. Uh, we, that's the way Ontarians say it, but Norwich is the English. Same spelling. Um, Norwich is the second largest town. So London, half a million people, 1640s. Norwich. 8,000. It's the second largest town in England. Now, uh, England's population is around 2 million people. That means the vast amount of England are living in little villages. Little villages and towns. And it's, it's, it's completely different from what well, England is now. It's, uh, England has yet to go through the Industrial Revolution, which will radically change England. It'll 
produce large urban centers like Birmingham, Liverpool, Leeds, Manchester, all those sort of places. All of those are little villages. And, uh, uh-oh, okay. Adam, Adam assured me that this wouldn't uh, create problems, but... Uh, okay, give me a sec, sorry. Um, the problem is it's not my computer, it's his computer, and... Yeah, this is a commercial break, right. Don't try to send me. Do you need Adam? I think I need Adam, yeah. This might be on his way. Is he on his way? Okay. Yeah, my apologies. Uh, while he's coming, uh, so Owen is in Oxford. Um, he's been raised in a Puritan home, um, but he does not have... Yes, it collapsed. It did? Yeah. Good. What collapsed? Uh, it just disappeared. Oh. And it's still, on. it's still on. Did the HDMI, like, did it go black for a little bit? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I think the cable's been damaged because I had that on Sunday morning. So, let's see if it can connect. Okay. Would it help if you downloaded the... No, it's uh, it's nothing to do with the laptop. Oh. It just has to do with the HDMI cable going to the screen. Ah, okay. You know, let me, let me try something real quick, though. Sorry. Okay. I think <clears throat> you might be able to do this. Prevent that from happening again. <clears throat> Sorry. Okay, that should prevent it from happening again. Okay. Just text me if, uh, you know, if it freaks okay. out. Yep. Good. Thank you, Adam. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Owen is raised in a Christian home, but he does not have what we would describe today as assurance of salvation. Um, intellectually, he's committed to Christianity. But he has his doubts about whether or not he is among the elect of God. And um, in 1642 or 1643, he has a very important experience. He and a friend of his, a cousin, are going to hear this man preach, Edmund Calamy, the elder. And uh, they get to the church and they find out Edmund Calamy's not well. He hasn't turned up to preach. Somebody else is preaching in his stead. So his, his uh, friend, who's actually his cousin, says to him, well, I hear that there's a man named Jackson of another well-known Puritan down the road. I mean, London has a lot of churches within a fairly easy walking distance. Let's go down there. We've never heard of this character who's going to preach here. Who knows what he's like? 
We'll go down the road. And uh, Owen says, no, I, I think I'm going to stay. And his cousin goes. And Owen never finds out exactly who the man is. But uh, that day, the man was preaching on a passage in Mark where Jesus talks to his disciples, O ye of little faith. And during the course of the sermon, Owen has this deep-seated impression that he is indeed a child of God and that he is among the people of God and he, he'll never forget this. He, he goes into that church with some doubts about whether or not he's a Christian. He comes out after that experience without a shadow of a doubt that he is indeed a believer. And uh, it gives him not only assurance of salvation, but it also gives him a deep interest in the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, because he becomes convinced that one of the vital things that Christians need to know is, am I genuinely born again? What does it mean to be a Christian? Are the marks of the Spirit's work evident in my life? And how do I know that? And so he becomes deeply interested in the work of the Holy Spirit. He will write the biggest book on the work of the Holy Spirit in the English language. Um, in the, 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 the standard edition, which was published in the 1800s, it runs to about 1,600 pages, which if you, put it, if you put it in modern font today, is about 2,500 pages. It's a huge, massive volume on every aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. How does he work in our lives, his indwelling, etc.? Not so much the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? He is a person and fully God. But how does he work in our lives? And Owen will, be, well, Owen will say after this experience, this very important thing, a clear shining from God must be at the bottom of deep laboring for God. In other words, if we are going to work fully and totally for God in all that we do, and he's not simply thinking of ministers here. He's thinking of serving God fully and completely. You must be fully assured that you are a child of God. And that the God who has... Uh, uh, worked in the Lord Jesus Christ, has called you to be his own, indwells you by his spirit, and is providing grace and gifts. And so Owen, oh, this is a very, very important experience for Owen. Owen never finds out who preached on that occasion. And it's a very interesting uh, illustration of how God can work in a variety of circumstances. And uh, he went to hear this man preach. This man never showed up. Another man preached in his stead. And obviously God knows who what that was. Uh, but Owen never did discover during his lifetime. Um, this is the period of the Civil War. And uh, Owen is appointed a minister by Parliament of a little village called Fordham in Essex. Um, I've been to both of these churches. Uh, the one in Cogshall, that's how you would say that, Cogshall, um, could seat around 2,000 in Owen's day. Um, so Owen would fill that church. So Owen would later say, you know, if he could give up all of his learning to preach like Bunyan, he could command audiences like Bunyan in his own day. Um, but also, this is the whole period of the Civil War. And uh, uh, I'll talk about this portrait in a minute. It's in Cogshall. Owen, when Owen goes to um, Fordham and Cogshall, um, he was a Presbyterian, like most Puritans. That is, the church 
was to be governed by elders. Elder-led and elder-ruled. Elders were to appoint elders. Congregations don't appoint elders. This is classical Presbyterianism. It's not Presbyterianism today. Uh, elders appoint elders, etc. Um, in uh, Cogshall, Owen reads a book by a man named John Cotton called The Keys of the Kingdom. And Owen becomes a Congregationalist. That is, the center of authority are not the elders in a local church under Christ. Who, who under Christ has authority in the local church? Is it, the, is it the Church of England's view? The bishops? The Presbyterians? Most 90% of Puritans are Presbyterian. Uh, is it the elders? Or is it the congregation? And Owen, Owen transitions in the 1640s to becoming a congregationalist. And that would be very interesting how he led church meetings then. Um, Baptists are congregationalists. Of course, we have pastors, we have elders, but the ultimate authority under Christ in a Baptist congregation is the congregation. And uh, personally, I'm convinced of this perspective. Um, how that works out in a local church is obviously there are challenges, but um, uh, this is very critical. Owen will become a major leader of congregationalists. Um, he also makes the acquaintance of Oliver Cromwell in this period. Uh, Cromwell hears him preach and says, I must get to know that man. And uh, the Civil War takes place. Uh, the Puritans win the Civil War and they execute their king. This is a, a contemporary print of the beheading of Charles. There's his body. There's his head. Uh, all of these men up here are on the platform with him. One of them, the executioner, would not have been uh, identifiable by face. He would have wore a hood. So you wouldn't know who he was. So I think we do know who he is now, who actually beheaded the king. Um, upwards of a thousand people saw it. Uh, many, and many of them Puritans. And many of the Puritans were horrified that Parliament had executed their king. Um, Owen Baxter was horrified that they would do such a thing to the, uh, in his mind, divinely appointed monarch of England. The day after the execution, on January the 31st, John Owen was asked to preach before Parliament. And we still have his sermon. His sermon is based on 2 Kings 21. And that's the story of Manasseh, who is a wicked king, who at the very end of his life, when he's in, uh, when he's in uh, imprisonment by the, uh, by the uh, uh, Babylonians and Assyrians, he repents. Uh, but for most of his reign, he is a wicked idolater. He, and Owen emphasizes that what, what do you do when you've got a wicked idolater as a ruler? You got two choices. You either get rid of them or you incur the judgment of God. And he doesn't mention Charles I in the, in the sermon at all. I mean, nobody could miss what he was saying. The very day before, Parliament had executed the king. The next day, Owen preaches on Manasseh. And what do you do with Manasseh's? You get rid of them. 
And it's obvious that he approved of the execution of the king. It's obvious then he approved of republican government. And uh, it's not surprising then that this man, Oliver Cromwell, liked him. And uh, when Cromwell invaded Ireland, which he did in 1649, um, he invaded Ireland because the king, Charles I, had corresponded with, through his wife with Irish troops who were Roman Catholic, inviting them to come over to England to fight for him against his own people. That's the charge. That's why the king was put on trial. He wasn't put on trial because he was uh, opposed to the Puritans. He was put on trial for treason, for um, seeking to employ Irish and French, yes, Catholic, troops to fight against the English. I, I often use the illustration, if our prime minister, if all kinds of riots broke out, let's say in Hamilton, and they spread to Dundas, where I live, and uh, Waterdown, and uh, Winnipeg, and Vancouver, and uh, they bring the police out, they can't control the riots. They then bring the army out, they can't control the riots. And if our prime minister uh, called up a Putin, I'm really, this is far-fetched, and uh, said, you know, I think I'd like a few of your regiments. You know, can he spare some from Ukraine? And uh, paratroopers, Russian paratroopers, appeared on our streets. I mean, that would be the end of our prime minister. Uh, he would be imprisoned, I would hope, for sedition for making war by, with a foreign power against his own people. And that's the scenario here. Um, and because the Irish were implicated, uh, Cromwell decided, I'm going to fix the Irish, and he invades Ireland. He conquers Ireland in about six months. It's brutal. There are two sieges, uh, one at a place called Drogheda, D-R-O-G-H-E-D-A, uh, the siege took about six weeks to break through the walls. At one point, Cromwell offered clemency to everybody inside the town, which included combatants, some of their wives, and children. And the rules of war in this period were, if you reject the offer of clemency, that is surrender, everybody in the town is regarded as a combatant. That was, that was standard rule of war. And the walls are breached. Cromwell goes in with his troops. One or two of his friends are actually killed in the breach of the walls. And Cromwell just says, absolutely no clemency. And everybody in the town was put to the sword. And it was brutal. So I grew up Irish Catholic. And uh, Cromwell's name was, uh, it was, yeah, it was the, the epitome of wickedness. In Ireland and so I go I go back to Ireland pretty not every year but many years and uh, especially the south where my family come from and uh, uh, I mean, I'm involved with a number of evangelical Baptists in Ireland you do not mention the name of Cromwell uh, his name is still regarded as a vicious killer and uh, Owen goes over with Cromwell as a chaplain and he's primarily based in Dublin. And he's very disturbed. Owen had, different from Baxter, Baxter actually joined Cromwell's army, and if you might remember this, and he saw, he saw the fighting on the battlefield, and he was very disturbed by it. Owen supports 
the, the parliamentary fight against the king, but he's never actually at a battlefield until he goes over with Cromwell. So it's one thing to, to support you know, a civil war, and you never actually see fighting. But he sees fighting, and he's disturbed by it. And uh, the other thing that's behind here, too, is that um, the English are deeply racist against the Irish. Um, the Irish, every, every Englishman knew the Irish are subhuman. That was a common. In the 1960s, I could show you, I've got pictures of, of, of uh, these are signs in, in windows of restaurants. No dogs, no Irish. That's the 1960s in England. I grew up in England, I was born in England, and I love England, but there is, there is an element of racism against the Irish. Um, so this is a very interesting statement that Owen makes. Uh-oh. It's supposed to be there. <laughs> okay, you will have to listen. Um, he, he's very disturbed by what he sees. And he says this. How is it that Jesus Christ is in Ireland only as a lion, staining all his garments with the blood of his enemies? And no one is holding him out as a lamb, sprinkled with his own blood for his friends. Is it the sovereignty of it, and interest of England that is alone to be here transacted. In other words, why is it that the only picture that anybody in Ireland's getting, the Irish are getting, is of us as Puritans and Jesus Christ as a lion attacking his enemies, rather than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who dies for sinners? Is the only thing to be enacted in Ireland our national interest of England? For my part, I see no further into the mystery of these things, but I could hardly rejoice that the Irish might enjoy Ireland so long as the moon endureth. That's quite remarkable. So that Jesus Christ might possess the Irish. I would there were for pre the present one gospel preacher for every town in Ireland. If the Irish being gospelless move not our hearts. It is hoped their cries will disquiet our rest and rest help from us as a beggar doth alms. In other words, what disturbed him was he, he probably went over to Ireland with the typical English view. <laughs> the Irish are subhuman. You know? We have, we have all kinds of rights to, to do with them as we please. But when he gets there, he realizes what they really need is the gospel. And here we've come over, we're people with the gospel, and what we're doing is we're killing the Irish, but instead we should be stretching out the Lord Jesus Christ to them. And uh, he will come back to England. Uh, Cromwell's left Ireland by 1650, um, but uh, Owen stays for a couple months after, and he comes back to England. He pre that's part of a sermon he gave to Parliament. And it's not surprising that he and Cromwell are on a bit of a collision course and their friendship will, will start to wane to some degree in the mid-1650s. 
Um, in 1650s, he's appointed the Vice Chancellor of Oxford. And again, I'm not sure what's going on here. There should be a text here. Uh, no? Okay. Um, anyway, he's appointed the Chancellor of Oxford in the 1650s. Um, he writes some of his great works on the Holy Spirit in this period of time. Uh, and they're initially given to 15 and 16 and 17-year-old boys. When you read them, they're really rich, and you're thinking what some of these young men would have sat under uh, hearing uh, Owen teach this. Uh, one of the students who sat under him is a man named John Locke. You may know that name. John Locke is a very important figure in the development of English democracy. And he sat under Owen, and he heard Owen emphasize that it is vital that the Spirit of God not be constrained by political means. The Spirit of God needs to be free to work with men without the use of politics. His time in Oxford was challenging uh, because a group, I'll talk about these people later in the month of March, the Quakers were starting to make their entry into various towns. And um, the Quakers were originally started by a man named George Fox, um, who in 1648 had a vision in Northern England that God wanted him to go throughout England and preach that the Holy Spirit dwells within every human being. And all you have to do is look within to find the Spirit. And he caused a lot of problems. A number of the early Quakers had this idea that they could go naked for a sign. This was their spiritual gift. Uh, there was one guy called Solomon Eccles. Uh, he exercised this gift for about 20 years. So <laughs> let's say here, we're at West Highland, we're worshiping, and suddenly Solomon Eccles comes in, runs down the front, uh, either completely naked or stripping his clothes off, and he will then try to preach. Uh, this did happen at Oxford. Uh, they argued that there is a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah probably was just wearing a loincloth and he went naked uh, to, as, a, as a parable to Israel. And they, they actually drew their support from that. And uh, what happens at Oxford is two women turn up and uh, go through the streets topless. And uh, Owen arrests them, warns them, this is very unbecoming. They emphasize, no, no, the Holy Spirit instructed us to do this. To, to, to get the students' attention <laughs> because the students need to hear about the Spirit of God. So he warned them. They didn't listen to him. And one of them turned up the following week, uh, following Sunday in the church, St. Mary the Virgin. Did the same palaver. He arrests her and he actually has her whipped for disturbing the peace. And so it's a very challenging time. Uh, in many respects. Uh, it's not surprising that the Church of England will look at all this and say, this is what happens when the Puritans are running the country. Uh, it's a complete chaos. Um, but anyway, um, in, and I, I apologize, there should be a text here. And in 1658, he and this man, Thomas Goodwin, uh, will write a confession of faith called the Savoy Declaration, in which they'll emphasize that the Holy Spirit is not to be mixed with politics. 
that the work of the gospel is to go forward by the Spirit's power and not through political means. It's a very, very important document and uh, underlies uh, Owen's deep commitment to congregationalism. And uh, I'll pick that up a bit later in March. And then in 1660, there is the restoration of the monarchy. And uh, the sort of thing that I just referred to with the Quakers, uh, oh, uh, uh, reinforced the minds of many Anglicans and even some Puritans that England needs a strong central government. And they need to invite the monarchy back. And when Oliver Cromwell dies in 1658, by that point in time, uh, Owen and Cromwell are estranged. Because in 1656, uh, a number of Cromwell's friends offered him the crown that he could become King Oliver. And he asked them, I, I need to pray about this. He prayed about it for 24 hours. And then said, no, I don't think that's what God wants me to do. And Owen was very upset because he felt Cromwell should have known right away. We fought to end the monarchy. Why does he need 24 hours to pray about it? And uh, Owen had been his chaplain, but when Cromwell dies, Thomas Goodwin, the other man, is his chaplain and is at his deathbed, and Owen is not there. But in 1660, the monarchy is restored. One of Cromwell's key generals, a man named George Monk, marches with a group uh, of uh, soldiers. I'm trying to think of the regiment. It's a very uh, important regiment, still in England. He had founded it in Scotland, marches down to London, seizes the capital, and goes over to France to invite Charles I's son, Charles II, back to the throne. Uh, the man that we looked at all the way back here, this man. And uh, Charles is asked, um, will you guarantee religious freedom? Of course I will. He said, I love the Bible more than any other book in the world. What nobody knows is that in France, he's become a secret Roman Catholic. Um, he is legally married, but he has multiple affairs. And he, he has no intention. Well, it's not clear. It's not clear what his intentions were. But the men who come to power with him are determined the Puritans are going to pay. And uh, within months of his coming back to England in 1660, they begin to arrest Puritan leaders. John Owen, John Bunyan is arrested. Bunyan in the fall of 1660 is at a small little village. It's actually a hamlet called Lower Samsel. Most maps of England, you can hardly find it. It's in Bedfordshire. It's probably about five or six houses. And when he gets to the house where he's going to hold a small Bible study, the person owning the house says to him, we understand the police authorities are, have a writ for your arrest. I recommend that we not have the Bible study tonight. You need to go into hiding. And Bunyan had got there about an hour ahead of time, and he spent the hour in prayer pacing around the house, uh, thinking about the two alternatives. Number one, if we don't have the Bible study and I go into hiding, God's people will be disconcerted that I'm afraid. If I do stay and have the Bible study, my family will lose their breadwinner. Um, he is... Uh, uh, first wife had already died. He had a blind daughter, Mary. 
His second wife was pregnant with her first child. Um, he stays. Within minutes of his, of his opening the scriptures, the door is kicked in. Two police constables come in and he's arrested. At his trial, he's told, what is your occupation? Well, I'm a tinker. Well, if you go back to being a tinker, we'll let you go. If you promise not to preach. Well, he, he, say, he basically says number two things. Number one, the congregation has called me to preach. Number two, King Jesus has gifted me to preach. And on that great day when I stand before King Jesus, it won't help me to tell them I was afraid of King Charles. And he said, I have to preach. Well, you'll stay in prison. And he's in prison for 12 years. Um, Owen is never imprisoned. He is in debt because he's got a lot of wealthy connections. He's got connections to the king. He, his, his carriage is mobbed on a couple of occasions. He fears for his life. But he's never actually, he never spends a night in prison. He's, it's very unusual. But on uh, August the 24th, 1662, an act is passed called the Act of Uniformity that makes this meeting, if this was a meeting, anybody here an Anglican clergyman? No. This is an, if, if this was back then, this is an illegal meeting. Only if you have more than five adults Meeting for religious purposes without an Anglican clergyman, it is illegal. Uh, all worship without Anglican clergy are, is illegal. And in one day, 2,000 Puritan ministers leave their churches and they're out in the cold. Their congregations sometimes go with them. They will now have to worship in barns, in woods. Uh, most of them will experience imprisonment. Uh, none of them are ever executed, but imprisonment itself could be a death sentence. Uh, Owen, as I said, is unusual because he doesn't experience this. Um, in the, Owen now has no ministry. Um, uh, there are Puritans in New England, and they invite him to come to New England to become the president of Harvard. And it was very tempting. He could have gone to uh, Boston being the president of Harvard College, trained men uh, with freedom, but he feels, no, no, God has called me to stay in England. Owen, by this point, has been married twice. His first wife had 18 children. Uh, only one survived into adulthood, and she dies before Owen. Owen buries all of his children as well as uh, two wives. His second wife would die as well. Uh, Owen, by the way, tells us virtually none of that. We, we know that from uh, death certificates and other documents. Uh, Owen never, never talks about his personal life at all, really. Here's a letter, though, he writes in uh, 1674 uh, to a man named Charles Fleetwood. He, Charles Fleetwood was a member of his congregation. He was a son-in-law of Oliver Cromwell. But he was also gentry. And so it's connections with people like this that kept Owen out of prison. I expect we shall die in the wilderness. Yet ought we to labor and pray continually the heavens would drop down from above, the skies pour down righteousness, that the earth may open and bring forth salvation, and that righteousness may spring up together. This is the important statement. I beseech you, to contend yet more earnestly than ever I have done with God 
So prayer with my own heart, with the church, and this statement, and to labor after spiritual revivals. The word revival as we know it, which is the, the idea of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in response to God's people crying out for revival and renewal, that word is a relatively new word. Uh, this is, if this is not the earliest usage of it in the way we use it, it's one of the earliest ways, one of the earliest examples of the way we use the word. The word was used in different contexts before this. This idea is of the outpouring of the Spirit uh, in answer to prayer. And Owen, Owen, by the end of his life, has realized all of the fighting we went through to secure a Christian government, it's come to not, not. What we should have been is men and women of prayer and asking God to pour out a spirit and convert the hearts of the men and women of England. And there's a number, I could, I could show you a number of Puritans at the end of their lives in the 1670s, 1680s are starting to realize that this, this whole madness that we went after politics really to some degree diverted us. We should have been praying for the revival as we now describe that term. It's a very, very important little statement. Owen dies a few years later in 1683, August the 24th, the same date as the 1662 Act of Uniformity was passed. This is Rembrandt's uh, Christ in the, in the Storm on Galilee. Um, it comes from the same period, 1633 is when he painted that. Um, you'll see the the apropos nature of it. I am going to him whom my soul have loved, or rather who have loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of my consolation. The passage is dying, is very irksome and wearisome through strong pains of various sorts, which are all issued in intermitting fever. All things are provided to carry me to London today, attending to the advice of my physician, but we were all disappointed by my utter disability to undertake the journey. I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower, him, will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despair. The promise stands invincible that he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I mean, when Owen died, things looked grim. It looked like the Puritan cause had been a complete failure. And where was God's help for his church? Well, we will we'll see what, what that, how that turns out in the years to come uh, later in the month of March. Uh, Bunyan was buried in this place, Bunhill Fields. If you ever go to London, um, I, when I go to London, I don't always go to this place, but I've been there probably seven, eight, nine times. Uh, there's 150,000 evangelicals, nonconformists, Puritans buried here. Bunyan's buried here. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, is buried here. Charles Wesley and Sue John Wesley's mother, Susanna Wesley's buried here. There aren't 150,000 graves evident now. It's about 1,000 evident. Uh, back in the 20, early 20th century, a large part of this area was requisitioned by the underground. 
and they move the bodies. I don't know what they do when they do that. Um, but uh, this is the the entrance to it. Uh, usually, there's um there are little maps you can they have there, tucked to show you where people's graves are. The first time I went, you could walk freely among them, and then I don't know whether all kinds of North Americans are going over to look at it, but they've put up railings now. And uh, I think one time I jumped the railing. I think, I don't, I, I'm not sure I did. Uh, I, I do remember something like that. Either I did it or somebody with me did it. Now you can actually contact the city and they'll give you a tour guide for which you pay. So, uh, this is John Owen's grave. Uh, this is a larger view of the graves. And here's where Owen is buried. Um, awaiting that great day of resurrection when he will join with all of God's people. Uh, there's a lot to teach us about Owen's life, I think. But particularly the, the importance of uh, the Spirit. And trusting in the work of the Spirit. And not turning to politics. He learns that later in his life. And the danger of thinking that politics can be the sphere in which we find redemption, but it's not. Uh, it's in the work of the Spirit. Next week, we'll look at that in, in some detail. Well, let me close in a word of prayer. Next week, then, what I'd like to do is look at Owen's, some of his teaching in more detail. And then uh, the next, uh, we're, going, we're going to the end of March. Uh, we want to look at the early Baptists and their rise, etc. So but let me pray. Father, we thank you again for our time together. Uh, we thank you for the witness of John Owen, for his life, his ministry. Uh, we do pray that what we have looked at today might help us as Christians. And we now pray that your peace and grace would go with us this week for Jesus' sake. Amen.